The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, a remedial course in baseball stats and proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. I'm your host and expert, Lehman Matt Goodwin, and I'm joined, as usual, by your fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. On this episode, we'll look at recent call-ups, how to analyze the minor league data, and what major league stats to look at to help you understand what story all of it tells together. We'll also discuss the A's stadium situation and talk a little bit about billionaires. But before we get to all of that, Alexander, how you doing? Hey, Matt. Not too bad today. How about yourself? Pretty good. Got uh, out on the uh, the golf course today. Uh, although I did get, since we have to talk about weather, I did get rained out of the last two holes. Uh, rained out is wrong. I got lightninged out <laughs> of the last two holes, which is far more dire. Uh, so as much as it was disappointing, uh, better than being struck by lightning. I, I know a guy who uh, played the round of his life uh, during, you know, like a sideways thunderstorm and, and lightning. Um, I mean, it didn't end great for him, but I think they move a movie about it, actually. Um, it really is our duty here to inform the people about what the weather was like seven or eight days prior to whenever they listen to us. Definitely. And I think that's I think that's really important yeah. that we can provide yeah. them the service. Um, I'm trying to yeah. segue I'll into th- it being relevant to the day's activities. Uh, but yes, somehow weather is always going to... Well, I mean, you know, listen, weather really dictates so much of what you can do, especially during the summer, so... I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. Love it. All right. Let's uh, let's get started with our bell ringer, and I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, Tis the season for uh, a lot of minor league movement, um, especially as we approach the trade deadline, maybe some people getting moved and some guys getting called up. So uh, for you, who's been the most exciting call-up so far? Uh, like, you want me to give you an answer that's based off of not just like the knee jerk knuckleball remotion emotion aspect, right? Uh, whatever uh... <laughs> really like floats your boat about the call up so far, like the the um, one guy that you're like, yes, I've been waiting for a long time, or yes, this person's exciting, or or even maybe the other way around, like ah, I was I I didn't think much was going to happen, and they've come up and been really good, so I'm now I'm excited about them. Okay, well, yeah, again. Th- the wrong answer that I'm going to give you anyway is Mickey Janis, <laughs> the knuckleballer that the uh, Baltimore Orioles promoted. I was at his debut. It was, um, it was really fun for my friend who's an Astros fan that was also there. <laughs> but you know, like, I, I think that's the sort of fun aspect of the game that has uh, been one of like the funner things for me to kind of like be present 
Yeah, for, that's it's uh, always awesome this, to be at a game when something cool happens. Uh, I, I would say though, uh, in terms of like actual guys who have been called up this calendar year, not like the rookies from last year who like still have rookie status and are yeah, playing. right, right, right. Yeah, they don't count. They don't count. At all. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of really interesting dudes on that list. Um, I would probably say. Uh, I don't know. I'm excited for what Jaron Duran can do thanks to his like yep. minor league run. We're going to talk about him plenty. Yes. Uh, but Jazz Chisel probably this is the guy who I think like I guess I would call him more of a rookie because he might have played a bit last year, but his like being a thing is this year. So yeah. I, I'm going to I'm going I'm <laughs> to use that as my answer. His being a thing is this year. That is true. His being a thing is this year. Um I think it's always very exciting when we start to get into the, the, the part where those like top 10, top 20, top 30 mm-hmm. prospects start making their debuts. And that's kind of going to be the focus of what we talk about um, with this episode is is looking at when they come to the majors, what can we learn about them from their minor league information? And then kind of what do we start looking at once they're in the major leagues to either um, support or, or maybe change the narrative? Um, but before we get to the details of all of that, um, I would like to bring up the number of the week. Who's uh, It's going to be about a different prospect that we're going to dive into a little bit more deeply. Um, but that is uh, number 15. And the reason that I bring up 15 is that Brandon Marsh, uh, for the Fangraphs prospect list, he was, he was ranked 15th preseason. So as of February of 2021, he was 15th. Uh, he's gotten the call. Um, talk to me a little bit about Brandon Marsh. Um, Brandon Marsh is a guy that I have always kind of not known enough about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and today, like, I think a lot of the theme is going to be about what we don't know about these guys, but, um, sure. he represents kind of like a couple different versions of, um, I feel like how I've been ignorant about prospects in some different ways. Um, ignorant is a fun word to use here. Because, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, at first, you know, you see a guy who's putting up over the course of like a full calendar year about ten home runs. Uh, Brandon Marsh's season high ever, 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 ever as a professional baseball player, uh, which is what you are when you're in the minors, yes. is ten home runs, which is what he did in 2018 across um, A and high A ball. Uh, over the course of what is that 127 games hmm. 10 home runs um, and 14 stolen bases that year um, and he was striking out at that point in the r- rookie ish but not actually rookie ball he was playing you know, like 26 percent of the time i don't know how you look at something like that and be like yeah that's my dude i am ready <laughs> to go to bat for him and he's gotten better obviously um we saw him play about no, actually fewer fewer games um but mostly in double uh, A in 2019, and the strikeouts dropped, and he put up a 137 WRC plus in double A, mm-hmm. which is good because uh, he has good competition there, and he's got some tools that are really easy to project. And I, I would say like over time, he's the sort of guy that like talk to people like Trevor Huth and people who are not Trevor Huth, and <laughs> you start to get a picture for like what you would care about. He's tall. Um, yeah. He's not strong yet, but he could be strong one day. He's currently fast. He'll probably be less fast one day, but that's a good way to get yourself in to a position that might matter. Yeah, right. Opportunity um, for sure. So yeah, he he's a really interesting guy. I think people project him to be a pretty good defender. Um, and then I think the question then is like, okay, you start to learn about some th- stuff, and like, like, okay, is he 
is he actually good enough to contribute to the team right away if he's this high-ranked prospect? Well, the answer kind of is no in a lot of cases, right? Um, I have a lot of doubts about a lot of guys that come up because typically people don't succeed immediately in yeah. major league baseball. So at this point, the sort of like ignorant I am about someone like him is the same sort of ignorant that everyone kind of should be. We don't know exactly what we're going to get out of him. Right. Um, he's right. swiped the bag already, which is cool. Uh, he hasn't really hit any laser beams. <laughs> to yeah. use a technical term there. Um, but I'm really interested in him as a case study that I'm going to kind of be willing to follow up on and kind of like watch throughout yeah. the rest of the year. What kind of information do we get? How much does he fall in line with what we think we know about him? Um, and I, I mean, what it, do you know about Brandon Marsh <laughs> to turn the tables yeah. here? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know much about, about him. I know he's got, uh, he had a, a decent pedigree, a lot of um, tools, right? He was a 60 grade future value prospect. Um, anybody ranked in the top 20, you're talking about somebody who is expected to contribute at the major league level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is a good place and a good way for us to segue into basically the crux of what we're going to talk about here uh, with our with our case studies and our, our central question about how do we make sense of all of this? What information can we use from the minor leagues? How can we contextualize that so that it makes sense? And then once they're here... And we do start getting that MLB data. Um, what is it that we should be looking at maybe a little bit more closely um, right off the bat? I know some of this stuff takes a while for it to normalize, for it to make sense, for it to be actionable. Uh, so I, I think that the the, the transfer there. So I, I know we want to talk a little bit about um, how things can be made equivalent to a certain degree, how we can compare more like apples to apples. They might not be the same variety of apple, but at least they're apples to apples uh, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. And then, uh, and how we use all of that information to make decisions, or to you know, you look at somebody like a like a Kelnick who came up and has struggled. Uh, what is it that we look at in his underlying metrics that we have from major league data to to say like, okay, is is he going to go the way of Keston Hera, who might just be a quadruple A player, or uh, is this just him working out the kinks that y- you have when you come up? Major League Baseball is no joke. I-, I think it's very easy for us who are on the sidelines and watching this and hearing about prospects who are so good um, to to remember that like the best of the best in the world play at, at this level. And so even when you're making the transition from AAA, which is a ton of really, really gifted, talented, very good baseball players – you're still making a, a a switch into a league of just the elite, and, and that that's going to be hard. The pitchers are going to be better. They're they're going to be able to defend you more effectively. They're going to have your number faster. Um, there's just a whole litany of reasons why that transition is difficult. And I think sometimes, as especially as fantasy players, we just get so excited. And, and I'm very guilty of this, so I'm not casting stones uh, without uh, living in my glass house, so to speak. Um, but we get so excited for these call-ups, um, and, and it sets us up maybe more for disappointment than anything. So how do we make sense of all this, I guess, is what, what that was a whole lot of words to say. Um <laughs> Uh, and we can talk about Brandon Marsh since that's where we started. We can move to another player, uh, whatever, whatever you'd like to do as the case study for why this matters, not just for these guys, but for anybody who gets called up. Yeah, I think the easiest guys to kind of project all of this onto are going to be Brandon Marsh and uh, Jaron Duran, who mm-hmm. are 
you know, I'm not going to say they're entwined or anything like that, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, they're interesting semi mirrors of each other in terms of kind of like what we've learned about them so far. And I think that's kind of a good place to start. Um, I, I am kind of partial to a lot of like the, the way that you'll see, uh, data, um, just kind of like popping up in terms of like uh, the fan graphs big board there's a cool thing they do there where they'll talk about like the relative risk for different guys they have uh and i think that's a really good way to kind of look at this uh you know they're both pretty um high up there on that pro- prospect big board mm-hmm. uh, i want to kind of just like throw a couple of other names out there just to kind of like show uh what sort of stuff though like uh we're seeing so like um when we talk about risk mo- almost no one gets graded as like a low risk um guy uh yeah there were going to be some people though who younger maybe a little bit less developed more toolsy you know like more like we see that he hit a ball really hard we saw that he ran really fast um we saw that he reacted really quickly yeah versus like the guys with like just a little bit more like yeah this guy tore up the sec and we drafted him and he's played pretty well you know mm-hmm. those right, are different right. types of guys right um, definitely and th- there's a reason why alec bohm got drafted third overall and then made the league pretty quickly even if everything hasn't perfectly pan- panned out for him he's a guy who has like pedigree of success and has been like dominant and that's one kind yeah. of prospect right whereas for example i want to throw out some like high risk guys towards the top of the board and kind of just talk about what they're looking at for someone like them like god pretty much everyone at the top of this board is it's really funny because <laughs> like we, we know very little about these guys right now yeah it's actually a partial thing but you know you might see a guy like you know wander franco medium risk guy uh jared kelnick technically a medium risk guy mm-hmm. adley rushman medium risk guy and then cj abrams who's like the fourth guy on their board right now um that's a high risk guy uh, he's a little bit younger he has not had that tearing up the sec track he get injured like as that. well i think he, I think he yeah, as well, right? yeah 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 so i mean i, that, I would so, imagine that would affect that that rating uh once somebody's injured at a, at a younger age yeah so um yeah brandon marsh though kind of fits in in their medium risk scheme uh and i think a lot of that comes down to the fact that you know he's barking on 24 years old right now um we've got some more data about him so we kind of have a better idea based off of his actually pretty long tenures at a couple of these spots you know we have like a full season of double a ball from him yeah we've seen him over time uh, you know relatively speaking we know so much about brandon marsh compared to some of these <laughs> other guys whereas uh, if you're looking at duran and this is a really interesting thing to me um you know he's actually like a guy who's moved around a lot of boards this year so you have to expand out find him relatively speaking he's not sitting on the generic board section let me click over and find that on his like their second third page um look at me being all organized (laughs) i i think that though like he represents an entirely different type of prospect um and you know i talked about like um we saw that marsh is like six four has all that like frame that you can imagine he'll get stronger one day um if you I don't know. Do you watch basketball? Are you? Do you have I, no, any, I'm actually not a yeah. big basketball fan. Yeah, yeah. A lot of um, a lot of photos have been going around about uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo's like picture whenever he was drafted. Mm-hmm. He's skinny and like about six foot nine to currently where he's like, they say he's six eleven, but that's a lie. He's like basically like <laughs> t- the Terminator or like Shaq but fast or however you want to describe <laughs> that. He's not a real human being. Um, yeah, they have Duran actually also as like a, a medium risk guys so okay just like these are both i want to clarify that but um i don't know they were they represent different like power uh potential isn't it like 
Duran's not a guy that we thought was going to hit all the, the ball all the hard. And he has way more homers this year. Yeah, so yeah. They're very different guys, right? So let me let me stop you there for just a second so that we can maybe look at this in segments. Let's look at them in as minor leaguers. What information and we've we've talked about this in previous episodes to a certain degree, but um what sort of information are we looking at in terms of their their minor league stuff? What do we have available? How do we make those kind of judgments before they get the call? Um and then how do we translate that maybe to what what they might do at the major league level? Yeah. So no, I, I start out with those grades. I'm not going to use those grades a whole lot yeah. else for this year, though, because, like, honestly, they are projecting long term, hoping for growth, hoping for coaching. And that happens in the offseason. Uh, that right, happens right. while you're there. Once your head is uh, above water, so to speak, and you're just kind of like barely swimming at the major league level, you're just fighting to survive. You're not necessarily working on your game in the same way. It's, it's kind of like a reality. You, you see a lot of pitchers that tend to just throw whatever keeps them around, mm. not necessarily work on developing that change up that would probably help put them over the top. So um, that's not like so much the same, I imagine, for hitters where hit ball is kind of your job. Um, but yeah. you know, if you want to change your approach, that's going to happen more in the off season. You're, right. If you decide you want right. to try and hit for more power, or you're going to try and make or more loft. contact or loft or yeah, launch angle, all that stuff. I'm sure that that's not, that's not a game to game kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love to call it loft separately just because it sounds <laughs> like um, I'm, I'm keeping all of those old heads off balance uh, um, of which you are not one, I think. So uh, congrats, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, the sort of things I'm going to look for, though, very, very quickly, um, are the sorts of things that I know I can believe in um, that are based off of choices. Yeah. Um, for the most part. That's strikeouts and walk numbers. Okay. Um, so let's take a look at Marsh, for example. Um, this year in AAA, he's been striking out 26.4% of the time uh, with a 14.5% walk rate. That's like 60% of the time putting the ball into play. 40 percent of the time, um, letting the ump decide where you yeah. go, you're going. <laughs> well, I guess you can swing through it too. Uh, but um, right. So that usually happens. You usually get high strikeout and high walk if you're a guy who's a little bit choosy. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have more than a few uh, kind of fast and choosy guys out there um, because you know they don't want to just ground permanently. I know there's a you'll actually find that a lot of the um, the guys we consider as like. Um, high contact guys yeah do you have a bit of a called strike problem so i'm really interested to see some of the data for him about that it's just kind of like a whole separate thing um the power hasn't really been there though um his iso this year is sitting at 213 quite a few doubles um i think you can scroll down and get his like he's got uh of his 24 hits in triple a this year uh what is that five doubles three triples and three home runs just 13 singles so yeah he's he's definitely getting something out of his power so that's kind of where we see the power projection it's gonna be doubles and triples so as a right. guy for now right if you're picking him up in redraft does that help you probably not yeah, <laughs> i don't know yeah. any leagues where like doubles <laughs> and triples really help all that much yeah i mean obviously it depends upon your format if you're in a points league it, it does but um you know, I, if you're you're talking about a very small sample size there as well, so mm-hmm. I, let's talk a little bit about um, the the translation because I think that mm-hmm. there are some tools that help us try and understand minor league stats as as major league equivalents or even like league to league. That's literally the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of different people who are in the business of translating uh, minor league stats to major league equivalents. 
it's literally the word we would use. It's hmm. quite handy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Clave Davenport is so Davenport translations. You ever heard those before? Uh, we can basically just take someone's existing data, uh, overlay some like shuffling around based off of what we know about what league you're in, et cetera, et cetera. And um, there's a couple different things, but the one I'm going to kind of quote here is just kind of like the generic translation for him. So like, for example, Brandon Marsh um, has a 255 batting average. We can translate. That's like the major league equivalent of batting 237. Okay. Um, batting average, obviously, all caveats aside, but you can kind of see like right, right, roughly yeah. how those sorts of things kind of tend to pan out so yeah he's not someone that you're necessarily projecting would have been doing so they, they his three home runs that would have been worth about two major league home runs great translation there so yeah um i think there's a lot of uh and i think this is kind of like where i i want to say like you don't always have to go so far as to go to clay davenport's website if you're seeing that someone has and this is the quick and dirty stuff I'm often doing, like for Brandon Marsh. He's got a 105 WRC plus in AAA. He's been 5% better than average in the top minor league stop. Yeah. Does that sound like a dominant major league hitter? No. No, no not at all. Doesn't. Uh, so there's definitely a good chance that Marsh is going to play plus defense, be a warm body in the Angels outfield, literally just please help them put some players into their lineup they need help uh and also you know he's he's getting up there in age so like it's it'd be interesting to see like if he's gonna be able to play with good enough defense if he's gonna make good decisions on the base base pads maybe he just needs to see some major league pitching sure uh, because the power will come but he's not a guy i'm interested in all that much in fantasy right now let me ask Um, you this question then how how does a guy like that and maybe you don't know and that's fine too you can just say thanks for putting me on the spot and making me feel dumb matt um, but how does a guy like that then be the 15th ranked prospect going into the season? Uh, well, we, I want to say like, he hasn't had a great triple a stop. Remember his double a stop in 2019. Uh, he was 40% better than the average. Okay. And we project the power will come because of what his frame looks like. He just hasn't added all that strength yet. Uh, baseball takes longer. So those are the sorts of things you add up the value that he's providing when he's not at the plate and he's a whole lot better of a prospect than he's definitely, I think though, not the sort of guy that fits into the classic mold mm. of like, um, Oh yeah. You can just see that dude's going to put it all together. Uh, you know, and I, I think that makes him kind of very outside of the sorts of guys I'm used to like seeing eight minor league clips of <laughs> looking at their minor league stat sheet really quickly. Um, a lot of this exercise we're kind of running through what should we care about most is i feel like a lot of projecting onto like what each of us have gleaned from other people i think a lot of the more interesting thing though is like as soon as we start to get a picture of him in the at the major league level we're getting all this data that um a lot of prospects people just really wish they had (laughs) and uh i'm not accusing anyone of lying about saying they know more than they do because like you watch actual game film and you have experience with like who people are like you learn more but um, we're gonna learn so much more about brendan marsh in the next couple of weeks yeah, than yeah. we've known for a long time and so. that's a good segue into what are the things we should be looking for out of marsh and, and duran as they yeah. continue in the majors now now they're here so everything they do is tracked it's all put on fan graphs we have a ton more information what of that information is 
uh, is going to be helpful in the short term. And then what becomes helpful in, in maybe the longer term is the, the season comes to an end in, uh, in a couple of months. So I'm actually going to kind of shift some focus here to Duran because I'm very interested in some funny things that have come about him dropping up in his like tinier than tiny sample um, savant stuff. He has 13 PAs so far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know anything that's good sample wise in 13 PAs. Right. Uh, so, so one of the things that's shown up is he's struck out 38 and a half percent of the time so far. Hmm. Again, just laughable that that could even mean anything. That's, um, do you know how many strikeouts that is? Uh, out of 13 at bats i mean out of three or four five 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 yeah um, yeah i mean we're yeah, obviously and, talking and... about very small things so <laughs> i i guess my question isn't if i go to the van Graaff's page right now yeah, what's it, meaningful clearly, but clearly. like as as he gets to 30 and 50 and and approaches 100 if i'm really trying to evaluate him uh, for whatever reason, whether it's fantasy, whether it's just general interest, whether it's, uh, you know, he gets involved. I don't think this is going to happen, but he's involved in a trade. Um, what are the, what are the things that we want to look at again? Like what's going to happen? What's going to be the quickest path to having good information? What's going to normalize first? Um, and how can we then compare that to what he's done in the minors to have this like narrative meets data? Here's the most likely outcome for him. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's there's a bunch of things that are really easy to use right away. Uh, and some of them for him are actually kind of funny already. Uh, so, again, think about, like, what is most in his control? What is based off a choice he's making or is a pure expression of how skilled he is? Um, I'm looking, before I even look at his, like, strikeout rate then, things are going to normalize even faster are going to be things like his zone contact rate. Yep. Um his chase rate and his chase contact rate to a degree but like zone contact and chase are like how often do you hit the pitches you should be like hitting in the zone um uh, when you're swinging yep and um how often are you choosing to lay off uh those things are for him not like actually look really good in his tiny sample yeah. <laughs> despite the huge <laughs> strikeout rate so yeah he's uh 82 percent in zone contact one of the nice things about savant is you can actually just go and see the league average that is a third of a percent better than league average but for a guy that you you know for a guy that uh, you would hope is going to make a lot of contact to the most of his speed pretty good uh right. his chase rate the league average chase rate is 28.3 percent it's pretty good his zone swing rate is a little bit lower so far again this is all just kind of like blindly blowing smoke at some tiny numbers but like you can go and you can see how these are going to go over the next Well, and that's the thing week. is what numbers we yeah. look at now and say, okay, it's a small sample size. This is meaningless, but in a couple of weeks might be more meaningful. And and I want to say like for those particular numbers, because they are so based upon choice and also because the PAs will rack up, we're talking once he's at 75, 80 plate appearances, we'll have a pretty good guess at who he is. Mm -hmm. That's talking like by the time we hit the trade deadline, we're going to know like a a fair amount about kind of like first iteration Jaron Durant. And then people are going to start throwing him different stuff in different places. And the relative mixes of those are going to be what matters. But how often he's making contact when he swings in the zone will probably stay pretty steady. How often he's choosing um, to swing will actually be something to to watch. You know, is, is he choosing to lay off? Um, you no, know, once you get those sorts of things, that's where things like 
and sometimes I hate it, but things like hard hit rate are going to start to matter within about 100 PAs as well. We'll start to get a measure of how consistently he's tapping into power. By the way, he's already started, like, hitting the ball pretty hard. Uh, Of the eight, I guess it is, (laughs) seven or eight um, balls that he's already put into play. Yeah, he's walked once, struck out five times, so he's got... um, seven balls in play so far um god that's just so funny to think yeah, that's, I know. still i'm still having a lot of fun with it he's got a 71.4 percent hard hit rate that's five hard hit balls already though that's really yeah. good um and that's that's even better when you think about it that in the context of all his stats five out of 13 as like a hard hit per pa rate again a quarter is lead of average average for that so he's already in just like his first couple of pit games like even though he's had a couple strikeouts, the results have been there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Let's check in again. I, I'm saying there's 60, 70 PAs. We'll start to have like a, we're going to have a pretty good picture of like where the wobble range is going to be within 100 to 150. That's who he's probably going to be for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, right. So I would say mid August, I mean, don't expect him to change radically at that point. Um, so that's really, really fun. Um, also like other things like, um, you know, I don't, it takes a little while before your like max exit velo is like telling of what who you could be, but he's already put one into play is about 107 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. If you can get that over 110, that's gonna be pretty pretty good for a guy we thought was just fast. Right. And right. then for his sprint speed, like give that a week or two, and we'll we'll probably get a chance to see what his peak could be. So I'm super excited about him, and I think this is really important to say because he's such a good example of the power just showed up. And we have no other option but to believe that it's probably real. Yeah. Because you can't fake that. Um, yeah, right, right. And that's that like sort of you can't fake it sort of thing is one of the most interesting things. So uh, you can't fake, by the way, if we're looking at a couple other guys who are not these guys who have showed up yeah. early on in the year, you can't fake the kind of dominance that Jared Kilnick has had at levels that are not major league yeah, right, baseball. Right. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I think a lot of people are kind of leaning on right now. What sort of exceptional stuff have you provided? What have you done that's well, well above what could be random chance? And uh, it seems like Duran's done just so much of that already this year uh, in terms of like growth in power. Mm-hmm. And we're already starting to see like for a guy, he, he's 6'2". He's not tiny. Right, right. <laughs> he's, but I think it's easy to think of him that way because he's fast. These people are going to do some impressive things. and We should, we should pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, before we move on from this segment, are there any other players that you want to talk about? Maybe they fall into that category we kind of dismissed at the beginning at the top, uh, people who kind of came up last year and are still rookie eligible, but players in general that maybe are um, on the other side of where where uh, uh, Duran and, and Marsh are now uh, that mm-hmm. we can kind of look at and say, you know, look at what, um, you know, uh, Jess Chisholm has done or Jonathan India um, people who are a little further yeah. along in their their call ups. Yeah, those are those are two guys that I'm really interested in, kind of pay att- paying attention to. Um, and you know, I feel like there are going to be some cases where it's like the data that we have is just really weird. Like, I am so fascinated by the choices that Akil Badu has made this year. <laughs> he looks really fun and really good. Yeah, we don't have like a strong like he had a long run in AAA that's giving us a lot of information sort of like situation in the same way. Same thing for like Adolis Garcia. If we're looking towards the top of like the rookie outcomes leaderboards, you want to say, oh yeah, how good was this guy? How good is he now? Those guys aren't people who have a ton of data for. Um, 
But let's uh, let's go to Jazz Chisholm's page and like uh, I'm actually we can pull him together. All right, yeah. So t- taking a look at Jazz Chisholm's page, and yes, he's injured right now. It's terrible. He was supposed to be playing at the <laughs> uh, Marlins Nats game I was at on Monday night that ended at like eighteen one for the Nats. <laughs> uh, I personally believe he could have scored seventeen runs and changed the outcome of that game. Sure. Um, yeah, but Jazz Chisholm had posted strikeout rates uh double a in 2019 25 percent nine that was for like for miami um for arizona he was in like the 30s uh at both high a and double a so he was able to cut that down and then you know you add a couple extra points when he he gets called up essentially um Mm -hmm. and he was back at 30 percent five higher than he was at like his high last highest up so it's like you can project that you know he was sitting at like a wrc plus numbers uh 150 at two different stops for like a good number of plate appearances and stuff like that uh and then like 120 for his much longer arizona double a uh spot so then in the majors you adjust that down he's at a 110 wrc plus this year Mm. um so like it's not like an easy like add five percent more strikeouts or cut some more wrc plus like 30 points but you know you're gonna be able to confidently predict that that's gonna be an near average um sort of like outcome for him and and that's what's cool about this is like when someone goes and dominates you expect within a season or so you might see an above average mlb season Um, so it'd be really fun to see then jaron duran put up a slightly above average rest of season outcome and then we can just salivate next yeah, <laughs> yeah, february right. and just think can this guy go 30 <laughs> 30 i don't know if he can go 30 30 but um uh, do, you, like, do you remember what we were projecting for like cavin biggio mm. to get him into like the top 50 picks yeah like we're gonna we're just gonna lose our minds over <laughs> next next spring well, if he's yeah. just average especially <laughs> so. if he yeah if he keeps doing doing uh exciting things um recency bias is a thing it, it, there's no way around it no matter how often uh we talk about numbers and all those things somebody who really impressed us people really want to be the one who has that guy when he takes off and blows up they really do so um it's okay it's okay if that's you that's sometimes it's me um now, now here's the part where i feel obligated to ask you uh, how well does the homer cap fit right now <laughs> for Jared Duran for you well yeah I mean are you ready to wear it as a as a Sox fan it's hard I, I actually do really try very hard with my fantasy stuff and with what we do here to separate out being a Red Sox fan but of course when you're when you're a fan of a team and they get a guy who comes up and he's electric and exciting um, especially with what the Sox have done this year, which is the complete opposite of everything I thought they were going to be at the beginning of the year. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, it's exciting and it's it's fun, and um, you you want them you want them to do well. You really do. Um, all right, let's move into a pass fail segment, and we're actually going to commit some more time in this episode to our pass fail and our off the books segments. Uh, topics definitely worthy of discussion, um, and. I, I, I since we're doing it as pass fail, I'm going to put it to you this way. But w- this warrants far more discussion than just giving me the straight pass yeah. fail response right off the bat. Uh, and that's talking about the situation with the Oakland A's and the stadium and the new stadium they they want question mark Maybe they don't. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about that? And if you wouldn't mind, just kind of kicking off a little bit of of 
telling everybody what's going on just in case they're not up on the news. So um, I'm going to start by being a little bit obnoxious. Um, The Oakland Athletics don't want to play in what we call the Oakland Coliseum anymore. Um, I think that's not news to anyone. Mm. Um, Anything more complicated than that, though, I feel like is when we start to actually getting there are going to be some situations where people like me are going to project on kind of like how I feel like you have to interpret the data about how ownership and um, ownership outside of baseball as well tends to interact in these places and uh, how city councils and uh, other people are kind of like incentivized to act. So we're in a situation where um, the Oakland A's uh, billionaire inheritor uh, owner um, mm-hmm. who, who, by the way, um, inherited the, the gap fortune yes. are, you, are you someone who uh, uh has Fisher access to it the, uh, yeah yeah that's i don't know how you want to put that exactly um but that that's where he got his money i don't want to say made his money someone else made that company and a lot of other workers have produced the money that makes that money company exist right. so yeah that, that's that's where he, he comes from um and he wants his team to play somewhere else um, they have that Oakland Coliseum site where they could just redevelop the stadium. I, I'm not saying like improvements. They could put something else there. Yeah. Um, they don't want to do that. And the reporting seems to be right now, um, I believe Manfred was effectively like on a serious XM radio and, and said something to the effect of like the team sees it is more profitable to use that site for like housing. Hmm. Uh, so they picked out another location in town called Howard Terminal. I'm not someone like extremely familiar with all of the geography of Oakland and the Bay Area, but still just I'm zero familiar with really it, kind so, of like yeah. all you need to know essentially <laughs> here. Probably not exclusively. There's probably a lot of interesting stuff on the ground about like like these localities and like the history of those properties and like who lives there. But even without that, mm-hmm. just the the general piece of information is the team sees it as more profitable to turn that into housing, and they're asking for the city to pay a whole lot of money to help them develop Howard Terminal into the number that we're seeing is like $12 billion is what they want right. to go into this entire site between them and the city to put a stadium, parking, and shopping, and food, and just to make it the place to be as they wish it to be. Now, I, I don't know how many places to be have actually been like fully utopian built out of a baseball, football, <laughs> basketball stadium ever, but it, it, it's a whole lot of projecting and I hired an architect to make me happy that comes from the ownership side and those sort of things. So should that not happen because there are not 32 teams. There are some empty cities that are willing to be act as like places that you can say, will give you money. So yeah. the Oakland days, it sounds like because of the way that they are saying they are reacting, how the city's negotiating with them may become the Las Vegas A's. The Las, the Las Vegas athletics doesn't really roll off the tongue. There's already a Las Vegas Aces too in the AAA world as well, so it's it's just even doubly. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, so let's um, let's take a look at this if you don't mind from from kind of the two different points of view. I mean, there's obviously the cynical view of, you know, the billionaire has the assets and and is going to make more money uh, off of this, and and who does that hurt? Does it hurt the fan? Does it hurt the people on the ground? Uh, there's also the other way of looking at it that okay, so they developed the Coliseum area into high rise condos, it, people pay a lot of money for them. They go develop this other place that's not being used for that. Um, it employs people. It brings maybe uh, extra tourists into the city. It, it There's got to be a vested interest in the city for 
approving uh i think they called it a term sheet right so they the, the we know yeah, that the city council like, has what we're going to negotiate with yeah so here's has, the things we has approved say. a term sheet uh that's worth 12 billion dollars i think that the frustration on the athletic side is that that that's a term sheet that's got different terms than they wanted <laughs> approved on that sheet. <laughs> uh, I think somewhere in there, um, and I'll put the the links to um, some articles in, in the show notes. Um, uh, I think that their, their real sticking point is about uh, somewhere around $350 million and who's kind of covering that, the, the city or the ownership group. Um, you know, there, but there's gotta be, there's gotta be a reason that the city would want to do this and, and want to be a partner on a $12 billion project that's um, that's not putting money in their pockets per se. So what are the two sides of this, I guess, uh, if, if we're going to look at it from maybe the, the positive spin and the cynical spin? So, yeah, I, I think you kind of raise like the there has to be some amount of this that's true uh, with like regard to someone has to benefit a little bit from a new stadium being built. Right. Um, and I... I like to make sure that we talk about like the costs and the benefits and also just kind of like the ways that those also just get off track whenever we're outside of like the, the pristine reality that happens in like the, um, the CGI stadium flyover tours yeah. that the A's <laughs> tweeted out about what they think their new stadium could be. Yeah. Howard terminal is, uh, um, like, like I'm trying to see here. It looks like it's about like four or five miles, uh, West, um, of, and like kind of like like northwest of where the Coliseum currently is, it's closer to like, um, yeah, closer to Alameda, I guess. Is it's waterfront, um, right? Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. It looks like it would be a really cool idea if money were fake and stuff like that. <laughs> so I want to say the geography of that we're going to really embarrass ourselves here. The bigger idea though is it's, it's a big, pristine, pretty location that does seem like it would be a, a good spot potentially to park a bunch of cars and put a bunch of shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, the question, though, is if, if Oakland's taxpayers are going to be putting in something on the range of, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year over the course of 15, 20 years. Um, that's a considerable investment that could sure. be going towards other things. Right, right. Right. And the question then is, like, why are we paying this money? Uh, are you paying this money because it is, makes you better off? Or is are you paying your, this money because you feel like there's a threat that your team will move? Um, I think there is a pretty good way to kind of look at these as like, um, if you view sports teams as I kind of do as like community, um, like general properties, which isn't true by the way, right? The, not uh, legally, the days are not a yeah. community property, <laughs> but I, I kind of like decide to view them that way anyway because a lot of people see them as like a public good. Uh, yeah. Um, I think you can, you can look yeah. at it that way in terms of understanding the motivations of the fans or the taxpayers. They, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, you can imagine that there's like a, just some sort of like historic, but for profit thing that everyone has decided they like. And in the interest of, we all like this service they provide, we should keep it there. Even if it means someone, get some money at the end of the day. I think right. that there's kind of like, but that's how our world works. And I think that like, well, there's a lot of cynicism you can have, but like at the end of the day, like I like to go to my local target and I give them money and I buy <laughs> things and it makes me happy. Um, and baseball teams are like that, but much bigger. Right. <laughs> um, I don't know. There are a lot of targets though. Um, well, I think one of the, the biggest course, distinctions yeah. though, that we have to make when we're having this discussion is, you know, target, 
um, they might have some leverage in a in a city or a town to say we're gonna buy this space and we're gonna put one of our our stores here um, as opposed mm-hmm. to the next town over. But a major league baseball team, I mean, baseball's a monopoly. It's it's not like that's not just a theoretical thing. They they have been granted monopoly status, um, uh, separate from the antitrust laws that exist in this country. And so mm-hmm. the leverage that a team has when they're the only uh, the only like major league baseball league right that exists, <laughs> you're you're not getting the same leverage from a, an independent league team. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, when when i mean i don't know to me it almost feels like they're using this this status uh that the federal government has granted them to kind of push and bully people around um and whether that's good business and you're fine with that like that's not what i'm getting at you can think that that's horrible you can think that that's just the way it is and that's that's what capitalism is all about and and that's how this country works and so so be it um but it certainly holds the fans of an area hostage. You know, like how many people are going to stand up and say, I love my local team. Let's make this about the Yankees for a second. Let's do that. Uh, let's separate it from the, the, yeah. the athletics. How many Yankee good. fans are going to say, I think your economics are bad. I, I'm going to let you move and become a Mets fan or a Red Sox fan. There's, and I think, I know, right. right. Well, I think that goes back to what you were saying in terms of it being a public good. It it clearly is not a public good from a legal and financial standpoint, Mm -hmm. but from a fan base and a loyalty point of view, I think people are going to be a lot more willing to swallow bad uh, economic policy, even in their own interests, because they're fans. Like, somebody who might want the A's to stay and are rooting for this thing to go through might wind up with with less uh funding for their own housing or or benefits if they lose their job like that's real because that's real money that's going from the city to this stadium instead of to goods and services for the people of the city who are paying into those coffers. So, I mean, there's a ton of moving parts, yeah. but I do think it's important to acknowledge that this is a monopoly and that gives them so much power and influence. And on top of that, that fan loyalty is going to let them get away with even more than some other business. Yeah. I think this is where we kind of have to pull this back into like the specific reality of where we're at, right? You can make that Yankees comparison, but um, a lot of the discussion that I think is, kind of like happening around the A's is the fact that they don't draw a bunch of tenants. Um, mm. People don't like to go to, it's not the O.co Coliseum anymore. <laughs> it, I actually don't even know its current name. I just know it's not that. Um, and the question then becomes, it's like, well, they're not getting any fans. We got to do something. I guess this thing the team says that they have to do must be true then. And that's it, just not how things work. John Fisher's worth like, three and change billion dollars um that's probably gone up mm-hmm. he hasn't made any of that money personally himself and he has pro- probably i would say um a considerable capacity to make a good sound decision about the team financing some things he puts in some money and the team decides to put in some money based off of what or the city decides to put in some money state local things that's not where we're at right now though someone is playing like let's go make a big beautiful thing it, that is a monument to my success that I perceive. That's what's happening here. Yeah. That's why you dream up their Howard Terminal thing rather than choosing to make the prudent financial decision. Um, John Fisher has also run the Oakland A's financially, you know, 
in a way that like defines our um, understanding of them. That is definitely a team that if they had been choosing to invest long term would not be in this position where they're at with fans. Yeah. This is a team that like if they had not chosen essentially to not do things differently with the the, the Coliseum, you know, potentially you know, there's lots of things they could have been doing to maintain Well, that I mean, there was a report a whole lot better for a whole long, for a very long time. Yeah, a, a report from or a quote, I should say, from somebody who gave it on on condition of anonymity because they work for the guy. Um, that appears in this article that, uh, again, I'll put in the show notes, um, where he basically walked into a room and a lot of people had never seen him. He, he keeps kind of a low profile and basically said, yeah, I, I know I'm the cheapest owner in baseball or something to that effect. Right. So he's acknowledging this. I, I mean, I have made no secret of how I feel about the base, uh, the business of baseball interfering with the on field product and, and how much it really stinks and. You know, uh, uh, somebody who's already got three billion. I mean, uh, to me, <laughs> they've won. You, like you won. You, you're good. Uh, spend some money on the baseball team if if you are really into baseball. Sell the team to somebody who wants a good on-field product. If you don't, you don't need to earn any more money. You have what you need now. I guess when you get up to that that level, uh, whatever. And and who am I to tell him what to do with his money and and his life? But. It's it's hard for me to swallow the idea that this whole thing is is causing turmoil and angst and and you know the city council is having to allocate funds to all of this to what end I mean like you said a monument to his wealth to his power to his prestige and and quite honestly you know if if they're having a hard time drawing fans because of the way he's his team is running and part of that a large part of that has to do with how he's funding that team um you're really gambling that that people are going to come, you know, on the field of dreams mantra, right? If you build it at Howard's Landing, they will come. Maybe they still won't because the product you're providing them is is subpar in their eyes. So, I mean, it's a huge yeah. risk too to invest all that money. You don't know that necessarily that means people are going to show up and be willing to watch the same team in a different place. Yeah, let's also talk about some of the other things there that I think are really important. You bring up selling the team. Um so, like, they don't, and they're still the team that's run currently the way they are that is um, getting rid of talent left and right every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Marcus Simeon is, like, clearly, clearly the best second baseman in the American League right now after not playing second base at all. <laughs> and, like, looks like he is, like, a down-ballot MVP candidate again after being that two years ago. Mm-hmm. They just let him walk because they didn't want to sign him. And what do they do to replace him? Um if you were to say nothing, I think that would be accurate, except <laughs> instead of nothing, they have Elvis Andrews, mm-hmm. um, which has been kind of worse than that. Uh, and, and they're going to repeat this process again. I mean, it's really fun for me to tune in and watch Matt Olson hit home runs into um, the right field and center field uh, empty seats mm-hmm. in the Coliseum. But he won't be an A but for much longer. I I would project that there is not a Matt Olson extension that I will care about, and if there is, um, <laughs> I'm going to be surprised. Yeah, like, that's just kind of like that's the default setting. Uh, and I don't know, know anything at all about how they prioritize him or what he prioritizes. That's just the, the gamble we can take. The, now, if he does sell the team, this is really important as well. The only thing that's really changing the value of the team is a thing like that stadium mm-hmm. and. He is going to gain value out of this that he's going to be able to cash in on. And this is where another piece that's really important kind of comes in. Um, the, that's a ProPublica 
um, piece that many, many people have dove, dove into in terms of uh, sports and money. Basically, explores how sports league owners, not just baseball, can use what is a loophole that the MLB helped lobby for during mm-hmm. uh, the early 2000s to allow uh, like their baseball teams or football teams or basketball teams to be treated as depreciating like value losing right right so if he's able to get this stadium built he can for his next 15 like if he if he he sells to someone off to someone else almost immediately after the fact that new someone else can treat the new stadium that gets built as a an asset that is going down in value for the next 15 years along with any new contracts they might hand out to matt olson or whoever else right despite the fact that that's just blatantly not true well, <laughs> right. So up in value, and this is this is the off the book segment. Uh, just to to clarify that, and talking about billionaires using their sports franchises for tax breaks, and um, you know, uh, as the article states it, and correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding and reading of this, um, when you buy something new, uh, let's say it's a business that has let's say we're running a restaurant right right? and you buy like a a new like a stove thing for your kitchen right right? like that does depreciate or if you you have yes if you are are running an oil delivery company and you have a fleet of trucks those depreciate the facilities in a in a uh, uh depreciate right um the machinery the whatever it is that most assets do depreciate in value you buy them new they're they're the most expensive when they're new and then they they lose value, and you're allowed to write that off on your taxes. Fine, that's yeah. the way that it is. Uh, with sports franchises, yeah, actually, I have no problem with that for restaurants. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. With sports franchises, though, they're basically treating uh, television contracts, player contracts, and, and things that really do not depreciate as though they do. Um, I think yes. we have a lot of evidence to show that sports franchises do not depreciate over time. As a matter of fact, most of the money that is made is made. Uh, by buying and selling. So even if year over year you show a, a, a net loss, your your franchise is still worth more and more money. You see this when they get sold. Uh, so you're you're able to write that off. And and I just just for context in this piece, they showed that somebody working at the stadium who made I think it was somewhere around fifty three thousand dollars a year wound up paying a, a tax rate of fourteen point one percent. Uh, this is the Clippers uh, organization that they used. So it's owned by Steve Ball. Yeah, uh, He's a uh, Microsoft exactly. a player wound up, you know, spending thirty-eight million dollars in taxes. So I had a had a thirty-six percent uh, tax rate because of how much he made. And the owner who's paying all that money, the owner who's the billionaire, paid less than the woman who made fifty-three grand. In in percentage now it's a big number, but as a percentage of his income, it was it was less than what the person making fifty three grand a year uh, paid. So I, I, that's what we're talking about here. And, and are those assets actually depreciating? Mm. Yeah, and, and I think the final piece of this puzzle that's especially bringing it back to sports, if that's where your values lie, still fundamentally, yeah. um, is that these write-offs then get placed into the balance sheet as net negatives because that's what you have to do for the account to make right, sense for your taxes right. it's like i'm writing this off i'm taking a loss because wink wink nudge nudge the value of fernando tatis's contract is going to, literally player contracts right that's one of their things that they use depreciating assets for wink wink nudge nudge all of this money that i've decided to pay out for fernando tatis is going to depreciate and uh, he's going to become less valuable, and I need to make sure that 
And that's how you end up in a world where the revenues put the team as losing money. Um, and then when the league needs to go to the negotiating table, or when the Oakland A's go to the negotiating table, they say, yeah, we're losing money. Right. When that's just blatantly not true. And not the way um, that they, they discuss when they're at the negotiating table with the new buyer. Right. And certainly people are not buying franchises for more than the other guys spend if they've spent 10 years losing money. It just doesn't make sense. Now, the particulars of this, uh, I don't know if they do apply for Oakland, I should say, necessarily, because I need to figure out John Fisher bought the team, but it's a 15 year window. When did John Fisher buy the team? Um, Yeah. So John Fisher bought, um, like, finished buying out the last stake that he bought in November of 2016. Um, and kind of like buying shares of it and over time prior to that and like he's been a principal owner for quite a while but the way these laws work is you basically get to write something off when you buy it for 15 years so like Balmer bought the Clippers you know he's going to have a couple more years of being able to write them off before he can't do that anymore but you'll see a lot of these teams trade hands kind of increasingly frequently you see this kind of works like a lot of you'll see like people like be like a minority investor in a team and they buy like five percent and they keep that around for a little while and they use that to say that they're not that they're losing money right and then they sell it to someone else who gets to pull the same trick so it's really important to understand i think that if we do see these sports teams as what we would like to be public goods as what we would like to be pillars of the community if we would like to see them run in those sorts of ways where you know they promote youth sports and they promote like sportsmanship and they promote all these other things are important you know you see things like uh, john wall uh, when he was here in dc constantly a fixture of the community constantly showing up to like hand out backpacks to kids or you Mm -hmm. know people looked up to him because he's a good dude right if that's what you want your sports to be the tax code surrounding this and the way that the sports have been financialized creates a scenario where that is not what they are incentivized to do so all of the everything that I think we could normally say about like hoarding a bunch of wealth, meaning that someone else doesn't, you know, like, like think about like the minor league players, like even just like put it in those terms. If that's as, as narrow as you can think about this, like Gavin Lux, when he was tearing up AAA and AA is getting paid basically nothing. Right. And someone else, like s- several someone's else as part of the ownership group are being able to use his like the team that he's going to some way play for someday play for as a way to not pay taxes right um, and amass more money it's, now it's i mean evil, the flip right? side like ugh. yeah the flip side of this obviously is well it's not illegal they're not breaking the law so they're just they're just being smart businessmen and this is what they're doing and how they're using it i think the problem is um and and you know this probably is true not just of sports but people who buy and sell companies and um you know the line workers there you're you're really you're in impacting actual people's lives it's not just dollars and cents on a balance sheet so i get the argument that like look if they can make more money selling the coliseum land uh, to developers and and sell off you know huge high-priced condos and go develop this ballpark somewhere else and they can get the city city government to pay for some of it and everybody thinks it's a great idea why in the world would they not Uh, i think you really have to uh, find somebody who who understands the impact on the people and and values that and um you know i mean it remains to be seen what's going to happen in oakland but i i do think that a lot of times the the guys that that are up that high right uh, that that are billionaires which is an unbelievable amount of money 
um, you know, you generally don't get there without spending a lot of time looking at balance sheets and understanding the smart move and making the move regardless of um, consequences to others. And I don't mean to say that they're all evil people. I just mean I think that's just the way you, you accumulate that kind of wealth. So, um, you know, I, I guess that's the the flip side is why shouldn't they do it if they can? But um, it really stinks to, to put, you know, fans in the middle or, or um, a city council in the middle or having to divert, divert funds from real social programs that benefit real people on the ground to, to build a stadium or a vanity project or something to that effect. Yeah, I think the better question is not like, why shouldn't they? It's like, why, why should we allow that to be a possibility? Yeah. And and further, it's just like, like that's like just strictly the tax code. Why should we allow the tax code to work this way? Why should we allow like cities to have to operate this way? But, you know, broaden that out also just a, a hair larger. It's like, why should we be happy with this being the way that our sport is run as well? Um, you know, people like us who care about these institutions because it's fun yeah. should be should be willing to see that like you, in order to care about baseball you have to care about this that, it's a take that i feel like i constantly have to like explain it's like you can't access and really understand everything that happens in our game you can't understand why the oakland a's aren't going to make the playoffs this year you can't understand why the the angels have been bad for a long time now that's like a like vanity project mismanagement rather than just money mismanagement yeah. people say it's like, it's related but not the same like you can't understand why teams are the way that they are you can't without like being willing to take a look a little bit of how the sausage gets made sure and, and if, I, that can make people very uncomfortable yeah I think. I think that the example you bring up about minor leaguers though really it it, it really underscores what's going on there i i saw this um uh uh, it was a report a couple of days ago about, and I forget the franchise. It might have even been the Athletics, uh, but that their minor leaguers' uh, hotel bills when they were uh, away cost them more than they were actually making, and they had no choice because there weren't host families. and And I know COVID has been a big thing, but you're talking about uh, those are the people that are going to not all of them, obviously, but they're going to come up into your system, and they're the ones that are creating this product and driving all this money to you and and like just the it was the ace yeah yep. so we're talking about the oakland athletics here investing billions of dollars in a new stadium and their minor leaguers are are forced to pay hotel bills that exceed their earnings it's it's ridiculous it's just ridiculous i think that maybe instead of a, a vanity stadium project maybe you take care of your minor leaguers first you know, I mean, you're talking about somebody with $3 billion. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. It, that, that's where I start to actually get fired up. And this isn't a, a soapbox for me to stand on here. So I'm going to get off of it. But uh, that's that's where I think you really get to see the yeah. juxtaposition of what's going on here. So I, I think this kind of leads us to what I think is like the one last question that we should probably leave here thinking about. Because I don't think we're able to answer it properly. <laughs> and that is, if you're an Oakland A's fan, what do you do? Yeah. Um. I I think I've started to kind of confront that with the Orioles to a degree. Um, Peter Angelos, their owner, is actually in a lot of like non-baseball ways been a person who has done things that are good for the people of Maryland, the people of Baltimore. He's old and his son is like about to take, fully take over. And I cannot say the same thing hmm. of his son, who is like the executive at Masson. 
You know, <laughs> do you know anything about how well Masson is run right now? I don't, but um, the smile on your face suggests uh, all I need to know. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not excited for the reality where that could be the case or someone else might buy them as an institution and try to transform them. Because I just want to imagine that that is a bunch of people who play baseball at Camden Yards, uh, which is a beautiful place, yeah. by the way, which didn't cost $5 billion. And um, <laughs> yeah, um, let other people get in on things once in a while as well. So if you're an Oakland A's fan, and there are alarmingly few of them, given how <laughs> cool the city of Oakland is and how great their colors are, um, Memphis Depay, who's a, a Dutch soccer player who's about to start playing for barcelona posted this really funny like workout video the other day where he wasn't actually working out and he was wearing an oakland A's hat oh nice and it was a beautiful one as well it's like like one of the like the colors are a little more exaggerated and you really get some of the nice mustard of the yellow mm. great great hat and it was like i don't think he's an oakland A's fan. I don't, he really <laughs> cares. but you know like I, they are a, a franchise that i think um I wish we had an alternate reality where we could love them more. Yeah. And, well, and I, I just do, if, if I were, if I were a supporter of them, I would not know what to do with my life. Yeah. I think it's I really hard, angry. but I also think it's easy maybe for the rest of us who are not to absolve ourselves because our team's not in the spotlight right now, but this stuff happens with yeah. all of them, whether it's TV rights or negotiations, the MLB blackouts on MLB TV, all of this, all of the stuff that's going on across the league. It's, it's a sport wide problem. And it, it manifests in different ways and in different places, but it's it's certainly um, they're all symptoms of the same kind of underlying disease. Yeah, yeah, it's important to remember. Rob Banfred doesn't just appear out of midair. Midair, the decisions that he makes that support ownership don't just ha- happen out of midair. He's appointed by and he serves ownership to right. continue them as a business organization. Um, and baseball is not the MLB. I hope someone gets annoyed by the MLB <laughs> after all this time we've been yelling about other stuff. Um, but yeah, I think I think the like us just kind of talking about the financialization being evil is one thing. I think that we probably do need to make sure that we kind of give some care to like that question of like what it means to be a good fan and like an angry fan at the right times mm-hmm. um, and a celebrating fan when things are worth celebrating. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's like the league doesn't universally always do really terrible things. Um, I think in the past year or so, they've done a great job actually of helping players kind of take the reins on promoting themselves which has been really cool um you know we're seeing so much of tatis and otani that's just from tatis and otani basically just hey look at these dudes doing their thing yeah and i i, I like that i don't want to say just like there's a thing that has happened that's been good <laughs> um and i think one. that's there's a nice one. reminder that yeah, <laughs> the best things in baseball are uh not created by the people who um write the check to build the stadium um you could build it anywhere and i would come for them um right i'm not showing up because some stadium has fancy amenities or the restaurant um, across the street has a fine. great uh, wine selection i mean maybe yeah. a handful of people but i mean that's not no i'm i'm showing up for one soto right um, right i'm not showing up for uh, anything that mike rizzo or anything above anyone above him has done i'm showing up for one soto absolutely mike rizzo uh, and sgm i guess it's probably not even the right thing that's, that's still player side <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that does bring us to the end of this episode. Um, I think that we talked about a lot of uh, really meaningful stuff, a lot of important stuff, and hopefully some of these conversations continue. We'll check back in on some of these prospects with an episode later on in the season and see how things have unfolded. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for, for being a part of this with me as always, Alexander. And if you could just let the people know where they could find us. Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked Matt. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at dugout study hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed. If you haven't done that already, leave us a good review. If you can be so kind and If you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.